Welcome to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! We are one big family here. This is a line of BS my own staff would often say, and I would wince every time I heard them say it. For them, they meant it as a compliment. And I should have told them what I'm telling you now, but honestly, I like the compliment. For me, this nice little compliment was a failure of staff supervision. I did not want them to think of us like a family. I don't think any business should operate like a family. In community organizations, it's easy to get sucked into that feeling because you're on a mission for the community. But there are some real problems with the quote-unquote family dynamic. First of all, families are often dysfunctional. And as a family member, you're required to accept that dysfunctionality. None of that is helpful for an organization. Yes, there should be love and respect and camaraderie as everyone is in the trenches working towards a mission, but it should not rise to the level of unconditional love. Second, is the whole idea of unconditional love. You can't operate a successful business that way. In our family at the cultural center I ran, I had to fire employees who did not do their job and endangered others. My staff were more upset with me than the employee being fired because I was breaking the rules of the family, unconditional love. The fact is, I did love these employees. I had great respect for them in many ways, but I was treated like I had betrayed them rather than the other way around. And through other staff, that is what I heard. This is not how a company should run. And it was the family ideal that made me the bad father punishing my kid rather than that person being the bad employee jeopardizing the whole organization. Reed Hoffman, one of the founders of PayPal and LinkedIn, and an early investor in Facebook, partnered with two of his Silicon Valley colleagues, Ben Kenosha and Chris Yeh, to write an article for the Harvard Review called, Your Company is Not a Family. Now keep in mind this article was written a few years ago, but in it they write, In contrast to a family, a professional sports team has a specific mission to win games and championships, and its members come together to accomplish that mission. The composition of the team changes over time, either because the team member chooses to go to another team or because the team's management decides to cut or trade a team member. In this sense, a business is more like a sports team than a family. Consider what we can learn from the example of America's winningest professional sports teams. In the NFL, the New England Patriots have won three Super Bowls since the turn of the century. And over the same time period, the San Antonio Spurs of the NBA have won three NBA championships and a fourth in 1999. And the Boston Red Sox have won the World Series three times as well. Each of these winning franchises has been able to build a consistent identity and a long-term relationship with its players, even though many of those players change from year to year. An NFL team has 53 players on its roster. The only member of the current New England Patriots team that played in the first championship team is quarterback Tom Bradley. A Major League Baseball team has 25 players on its roster. The only member of the current Boston Red Sox team to have played in the 2004 World Series championship is designated hitter Dave Oritz. The Spurs stand out for stability and longevity with their player relationships, yet even their current 13-man roster only includes one player from their first championship in 1999, power forward Tim Duncan. 
The reason these teams have been able to maintain consistent winners despite high personnel turnover is that they have been able to combine a realistic view of the often temporary nature of the employee relationship with a focus on shared goals and long-term personal relationships. While a professional sports team doesn't guarantee lifetime employment for its players, far from it. The employer-employee relationship still benefits when it follows the principles of trust, mutual investment, and mutual benefit. Teams win when their individual members trust each other enough to prioritize team success over individual glory. It is no coincidence that these teams are known for the Patriot way or the Spurs way, and that television broadcasters often praise them for their unselfish play. You can look that article up online. For me, the best model for a community organization is a theater company. In a theater company, everyone is working together for the good of the show. It has all the aspects of a team, but you are not competing against other theater companies. In fact, you hope people will go to all the theater companies in town, and you patronize them as well. But you will not let anything or anyone get in the way of the show. The show must go on. Anyone hampering that is holding back the company. When the New York Times interviewed Linda LaSalle Bryant, CEO of Inwood House in New York, she put it this way. Recently, I've really shifted my thinking. Our culture reflects our work, which is to create a sense of family for our teens. So our staff would say, we are a family, we're a family. And I've actually said directly to everyone in all staff meetings, no, we are not a family because in a family, you never can fire somebody like your Uncle Joe. You just can't. You have to put up with him because he's family. In an organization, if someone is taking the organization down, we can't accept that because the organization is bigger than any one of us. She goes on to say, In a family, it's all about power. You know mom and dad has the power? And I think the dynamic that often plays out in the workplace is that people project all of that parental stuff. And I remember a job where I actually had to say to my team, I am not your mother. I'm the division director here. I have a job to do. You have a job to do. I tell you, when I read her interview, I just loved it. And I empathized with it so much that I invited Dr. LaSalle Bryant to be my guest today. Dr. LaSalle Bryant has gone on from running that home to a clinical assistant professor at NYU Silver School of Social Work. She also serves on the board of the New York City chapter for the National Association of Social Workers and on the board of the National Crittenden Foundation, which seeks to empower young women and girls, including young mothers. She served as Associate Commissioner for the Office of Youth Development at the New York City Administration for Children's Services and was appointed by Mayor Bloomberg to the New York City Panel for Education Policy. Welcome to the program, Dr. LaSalle Bryant. Pleasure to be with you. Great. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to have you on the program, and I, I got to tell you how this came about. I was not as, as quick to pick up on things as you did in your article, um, as it states in your New York Times article. It took me a while to kind of realize the detriment of kind of letting staff think of themselves as a big family. And I had a staff at a cultural center that would always say, oh, we're just one big family here. And they thought it was just the biggest compliment. And honestly, because I come from a dysfunctional family, it always made me wince a little bit. <laughs> but... Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I was honestly kind of, you know, uh, took it as a compliment until it came to a point where we had to let go of people because they were really putting other people in, in harm's way and not doing things properly. And and when that happened, they all looked at me like I was the bad guy, you know, <laughs> because I was getting rid of somebody in the family, you know. So uh, 
I, I think this is a really important topic that a lot of organizations don't really think about until it's too late, like I did. But you thought about it early, and you you know you have a really great, as I quoted earlier in the podcast, you have a really great uh, kind of take on this. But tell me about how you came to realize this fallacy of the staff as family way of thinking. Well, it was definitely through experience. It wasn't like I, uh, you know, began with that perspective. I think that um, many of us, families where we first get socialized, right? And so we get socialized into working and functioning in groups through our family experiences. And we tend to bring those practices, preferences, perspectives into the places where we work. And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? Our, our original authority figures are the people who had responsibility for raising us, parents, foster parents, um, adoptive parents. But the people who played those roles are the first, our first experience with authority figures. They're both authority figures, and they also are hopefully nurturing figures. Um, and so we walk into workplaces expecting this is a place where there are people in authority, and we, there are certain expectations we bring into the workplace. We're hoping that these authority figures will also be nurturing, that they will be invested in our well-being. That's not an inappropriate expectation, but when all of us are bringing that expectation into a workplace, you can see the potential for conflict there because in a family, and as I mentioned in the article, if someone is negatively affecting the, the entity, the organization as a whole, um, in a family, you don't get rid of that person, right? We've all got at least one family member who may not, you know, who may be problematic in some way. It, it could be a drunk uncle, you know, and I'm being just a little bit facetious, but, you know, it could be someone who has a substance abuse issue. It could be someone who's just a really difficult personality. Sure. Generally, the bigger the family, the more uh, dysfunction you have. <laughs> Right. I think I think most of us would consider ourselves lucky if it was just one person, but it usually is right. more than that one person. But there isn't there is an understanding that because they are family, that there's a loyalty that transcends the difficulty that they may be posing, and we have that loyalty to them as a family member, and we tend to find ways to either work around those difficulties, give them a pass, overlook it, ignore it. Um, find a way to deal with it, but we don't eject, we don't tend to eject people from the family, regardless of <clears throat> whatever problematic behavior they may be engaging in. In an organization, that same philosophy, that same loyalty that um, allows us to overlook a myriad of difficulties could really be detrimental and lethal to the functioning of an organization. And, you know, we, it's, a, it's a topic probably for another day to, to examine whether those problems can be lethal to a family as well. But what, yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. do know that in families, the, the tendency is not to eject people from the family system. But in an organization where your accountability goes beyond the bounds of the family, you may have accountability to government systems or fund other, uh, government systems or other entities that are providing funding for your work. You may have, uh, you, you may be accountable to a board of trustees who oversees that organization. You have a variety of accountability sources and you are accountable for delivering certain things, certain outcomes, certain uh, producing certain things. So you have to, you are accountable for producing results and you're going to be held accountable for that. 
if you tolerate, overlook, allow a certain type of behavior that's detrimental to the organization, that poses a threat to the organization. And so when we, when we say to our, our, in organizations, when we say we're like family or we function as a family, what we usually mean is all the good things that family represents. We're close, sure. loyal to one another, right? This is a place that feels good. I'm, I'm loved and respected and welcomed here. We don't usually, we're not thinking this includes all of the dysfunction. We're not thinking about the negative things. Um, but the reality is once we, once we open up that line of thinking, we do expect that it means you will put up with, tolerate, or at least try to help us through our, our negative issues. Um, and an organization does have a responsibility since it employs human beings. To some extent, it has a responsibility if someone's having a, some kind of a difficulty to see if they can be helpful. But there is a point at which the organization has to make an assessment. Is this person representing a threat to the stability, the integrity, the progress of the organization? And if so, we may have to make the difficult decision that may be emotionally wrenching, it may feel bad, but we may have to make that decision that this person has to leave the organization. Um, and so I, I think it's helpful to think about organizations as teams rather than as families because we do need a framework that allows us to feel like we're part of something bigger than us, we're part of a whole. We have membership in this entity, we, are, we have loyalty to this entity, but that also recognizes that there's a goal and it's bigger than just the membership in the organization. The goal is the progress of the organization. Now, before we, we get on to uh, kind of, you know, how we can look at things differently, uh, you know, one of the nice things about a family is you have people who are very experienced and younger people who are inexperienced and they help each other. The older people mentor the younger people. Those models are, are, are pretty good in terms of things that you can bring into an organization. But, you know, if somebody was a, a, a pedophile in the family, you wouldn't let them around your kids. And if someone was a pedophile in an organization, you would have no problem firing them. What comes what comes down to the, the more difficult situations is where you have, you know, I'll tell you in my situation, um, in, in, in several different positions where I've had trouble is you train people on something as simple as locking doors and setting alarms at the end of the day and they, they forget, you know, and then they continually forget. And it could be a younger person, it could be an older person, but they, they continually forget to lock the door or they forget to set the alarm. And, you know, I was in a situation once where staff forgot to lock a door and it allowed, it was a building that was in a park where we were running a cultural center and it allowed somebody from the park to get in and vandalize the building. Or it, in a different situation, it let somebody come in and commit the act of rape in the building. And those are horrible, horrible things. And, you know, you, you let the, the uh, staff know this is not acceptable but they they just can't seem to remember to lock the door. Well, how often do you let somebody go before you before you fire them when that in that kind of situation? You know, I mean, you have to you have to draw the line somewhere, even on the small things. That's exactly right. And I think in a one of the things that ideally happens in a team framework is that you identify what those points are ahead of time, and everyone you make that clear, everyone. Right here, here are some of the, the non-negotiables for our team. 
Um, it's right. something as simple as, you know, the, the Mets or the, or the Yankees or a baseball team. Pick a, pick a baseball team, right? There's, there are expectations that get communicated. You know, you hit a ball, even if you think it's going to be out, you run and you run, you run as hard as you can because you never know. Maybe someone drops the ball and you could, you could get on base. Right. Expect it that you have there's a level of effort and hustle you have to. This team expects you to contribute, and that becomes part of the culture of that team. Similarly, I think in organizations, this idea that the team, the whole, the organization, is bigger than any one individual. And so as a result, we're always going to put the well-being of the whole above individuals. And everyone is expected to do this, and there will be consequences. So I think where, where people really struggle is when the expectations are not clear and the, uh, the norms are not clear. And that's one of the things that happens in families. Like, we all know what some of the rules are in our families, even though no one holds a meeting and says, okay, I want everyone to know. Your brother's my favorite, um, so you know he's going to get the biggest holiday gift. Like, we don't, we don't state those things, but they're understood. You don't yeah. take a chance in an organization that uh, you don't want to leave it up to chance what people understand. You want to be as explicit as possible about what those norms and expectations are and what some of the consequences are if certain things are, are violated. And that it isn't personal. It's not about I'm going to punish you. It's about I'm going to protect the organization because that's part of my role on the team, to protect the organization. So no, even the person who's in the leadership role, has a, they have a role to play. Right. Well, even in the case of uh, like the locking the door example, you know, you can I, I would put out a memo uh, about a policy about locking doors and that this was, you know, a fireball uh, uh, offense if it was done repeatedly and or not locking the doors done repeatedly. And yet still, when you when you end up having to fire someone for that, the other staff are going to say to you, but it's such a small thing. They just they didn't lock a door. So what? Why? You know, they, why are you making a big deal about it? And you know, you it's a lot harder to defend that than it is, you know, something like pedophilia or something that is, you know, uh, getting drunk at work or substance abuse or whatever, you know. It just makes it a little bit harder to defend the smaller actions, even though they can have big consequences. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the other thing I mentioned in the article was the importance of allowing a certain amount of space for debriefing and unpacking those things when they happen. Um, good, good. So that, so that's, Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it is important for staff to be able to share and process their disappointment, their whatever feelings they have about the fact that someone has been terminated without, at the same time, without getting into the specifics, um, because the person who has been terminated, we have to respect their confidentiality. Right. So we're not going to open up their particular case for everyone to weigh in on. But we can talk about how the group feels about the change that has happened, and we can talk about why that decision was made, why, why it was important to reinforce this particular policy, and to also ask staff to step into that role for a moment, even, even just virtually, and say, okay, so now if you're running the organization and you need to protect the organization, how do you handle, how would you suggest the organization handle repeated violations to lock the door? How do, you, right. how do you keep the organization safe? Okay, and it's helpful for them to then think about, hmm, okay, so what, I'm, I'm really smarting at the moment about the fact that my colleague is gone, but I do understand why the door needs to be locked. I do understand what the risk is to the organization. 
Um, and it, it isn't about, again, in a team, you don't always have to like every policy. You don't even have to agree with every policy. You do have to follow the policies, right? right. Because in, in a workplace, there is, there's a contract, there's an agreement. You're going to work here. This is what you're going to deliver for this kind of a salary. And these are the norms that we all function under. Now you, that the, yeah, those norms be clear and explicit. Now you were mentioning sports teams, and, and that comes up a lot in articles when you when you kind of research, you know, this this topic. But I, I tend to like um, the idea of of a battalion in wartime. You know, sometimes, especially in social work, but in many uh, fields and in, in community organizations, you'll have uh, people that kind of feel like they're in the trenches. You know, and you get that kind of camaraderie of of people in a battalion in the trenches. And if someone were to fail uh, miserably on your, on your battalion, then your, you know, your whole battalion is in a life and death situation. So, you know, that I think is also a good model. Another model I really like is is theater companies. You put together, you know, you have, I have a barn, let's put on a show, you know, and you put together a show and and the show must go on. If somebody is falling down on the job, you're going to take them out of the show because, you know, the show is the most important thing. Right. And I, and I think it's a worthwhile conversation to discuss with the group, which one of these metaphors, which one of these models do they feel best suits the kind of work that the organization is doing? So are there any other tip, tips that you can give us to get people out of the mindset of, of thinking of the organization as a family? I mean, what I found helpful was to literally explicitly say that we weren't the family, right? To talk about yes. that there are aspects of our culture that or positive aspects of being in a, in a family that we may want our organizational culture to feel like. We want people to feel nurtured. We want people to feel welcomed. Uh, we want it to feel warm. That, that's fine. But to really um, have us work on identifying what is that model that we're going to use to define how we work together and achieve the result or the mission of the organization. And what will we do? with when when there's a threat to the organization you know if we use the the analogy you just gave of you know in 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 wartime um it's really important to keep your eye on the prize what's the mission we have to survive we have to advance what what does that look like in your particular organization and i think just engaging a team or or a staff in a conversation about the, the merits and the not so good aspects of any of these models and to have them think about which one suits that organization best is a worthwhile conversation to have. Even to have them debate the pros and cons of functioning like a family. Because it's important that we get, we we engage staff members in co-creating with management what that organizational culture is going to be like, rather than having it being pronounced from on high. That is great advice. But rather, let's, let's engage people in you know, you're, you're part of creating this. Yeah, I think it's... How shall we create this? I think what you're saying is important because what I hear you saying is the best of leadership, which is when you make it, when you make yourself a facilitator of a conversation rather than you're barking out orders at people, but you're, you're sitting there saying, this is the conversation we're having. Let's figure out the model we want. What are your issues with it? And, you know, that that's really good. Uh, I think leadership always goes better when you're facilitating a conversation rather than barking out orders. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, there is a collective intelligence in any group. And I think from the manager's perspective, you get the opportunity to leverage that collective intelligence by engaging people in these conversations. And the organization is strengthened because people bring their their perspectives and their strengths to the table. The kind of challenges that most organizations have to deal with in, in our current economic climate, in our current policy climate, there, there are no, these are challenging things and there probably are no easy answers. So it's, I think it's in our best interest to engage that collective wisdom that you have available to you. Absolutely. Well, you know, most of the people that listen to this podcast are in smaller uh, community benefit organizations. And if we have people listening to us who are in a new position as a CEO of a small organization, um, what, what advice would you give them in terms of how to, uh, how to corral their, their staff and get the most out of the, the leadership role? Yeah, I think in terms of getting the most out of the leadership role, to recognize that, you know, if we were if we were leading uh, in a forest all by ourselves, would we really be leading if there were no one else there, right? <laughs> um, and 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 so to kind of recognize that your ability to lead is directly linked to the people you are trying to lead, um, and and I think the the biggest recommendation or tip I would give is that your greatest responsibility as a leader is to cultivate leadership in others not to see yourself as the sole answer, the person who has to come up with all of the answers, uh, the person who has to set the course and then everyone else must follow. But you're, you're really trying to spark leadership in others. And what that, what that simply means is you want to spark their contributions, their engagement in the mission or the cause of the organization. You want them to contribute to addressing the challenges that the organization has to deal with. Um, more heads are better than one head if we, if we leverage that properly. So think about, look in the room and, and, and try to identify where's the leadership that I have available here? What kind of leadership talent and potential exists here that we can, we can leverage and bring to bear so that the organization can be stronger and better? And the best way to do that is to engage people in conversation, in dialogue, in working on solving challenges or problems. Don't try to take it on by yourself. Wow, that is incredibly good advice. <laughs> that that is really good. I um, I, I want to. I almost want to like just make a podcast with nothing but that because that was so well said. I think uh, a lot of people miss that. They they miss the idea that their job is to develop other leaders. And when you do that, you're doing succession planning. You're you know you're you're making sure that the organization is going to move on after you're gone from it as well as developing your staff in a way that is only going to endear them to you and make them more loyal to what you're trying to do as well. Exactly, and people are you know when their ideas are valued and and their ideas are solicited, their loyalty, their connection, their engagement with whatever the work is, whatever the organization is, is is only deepened because now they have a they're invested. Right. And so, right. So it serves it serves you as the leader, but it serves the organization. More importantly, it serves the organization as a whole. And I just want to say, I, I, I can say this now because I didn't understand that. And I thought I had to solve everything. And I was burning myself out um, trying to carry it all on my own back when I had a very capable team of people who had much to contribute. So that was something I had to. I had to learn it. I had to come to that, but it was after trying to do it all by myself. 
Yeah, I had the exact same experience. And I, you know, I would consider myself an A-type personality. I think maybe you are as well, right? And, and I think a lot of people that are chosen in lawyer, into leader roles are A-type personalities. They're usually very ambitious people. And it's normal for us to want to um, micromanage and kind of try to take the reins and do everything and, and maybe sometimes be too directorial. And it's a real learning curve to figure out that the best way we can lead is by facilitating other leaders. What you said, that's, it's so true. I, I wrote a book on nonprofit management and in the first chapter I cover leadership and I have this really great illustration of a group of people going into a cave with a bear in it. And I always say that leadership is like, you're going into a dark cave and you know there's a bear in there and you know somehow you can get out the other side but you're not sure how. And you're, you're chosen as the leader because they're gonna allow you to carry the flashlight and be the first one eaten by the bear. <laughs> right. And as a result, and as a result, we think like, okay, so I am the only one who can get us out of here. I've got the flashlight, right? And I'm and I'm right. the risk. I may I'm going to be the first one eaten by the bear. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know, as a leader, you're willing to take that risk, and the other people are willing to give it to you because they don't want to be the one with the flashlight that the bear is going to see first, right? But um, but y- y- like you said, you you need to get as much expertise as you can to help you get through that cave and by developing the others like if you have a marketing director and you're not making them the expert on marketing and the best marketing director to give you the best advice then you're missing out and the same with the development director and the same with whatever other staff you have right yep absolutely and we can we sometimes we conflate you know control with leadership Right. And, and, and they're, they're very different things. I think one of the more important things a leader does is they give the work back to the people to do it. Right? Don't, don't take all the responsibility, all of the, take it all on yourself. Engage people. This is, this is a shared challenge. We can't get to the other side and we can't, you know, avoid getting eaten by the bear if we don't work together. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have one more question for you, and then I'll let you go about your day. But uh, because this this show is called 501c3bs, and we're about myth busting and kind of getting rid of those myths in our sector, is there any BS or myths in our sector that you would like to address? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, what's your top? <laughs> well, um, I think in, in the not-for-profit sector, I mean, there, there's a lot I could say on this, but, but one of the things, um, I, one piece of BS, I think, is this idea that we need to operate on these shoestring budgets and that all of the things that the corporate world knows are essential ingredients to having a business succeed we think, you know, we can't possibly expend resources on those things because, you know, we're doing mission work. We're doing God's work. And so, therefore, we have to not deal with marketing or spend much on marketing or much on fundraising or, or anything else because we, we need to put all of our money into the work. And I'd be the first person to say the most important thing is the mission. But in order to fulfill that mission, we also need the best strategies around marketing and fundraising. This idea that uh, that's considered like overhead and it's just you have to minimize that as much as possible, I think is one that has the sector hobbled and not able to do its best work. And I think we should be evaluated more on our results, not on whether we have a 12% or a 15% overhead. Clearly, we, we don't also don't want to see excess and abuse and waste. 
but let's recognize that the kind of work we're doing, the mission work we're doing, we're tackling some of the most difficult challenges that society is dealing with. We're doing more than building a car. And so we also need the best expertise to make sure that the business thrives and that we're able to achieve that mission. So I, I always feel like that's a, that's a real conundrum um, in mission work, which is do it with pretty much no resources um, because the nobility of your cause should be enough. And I think if we really value the nobility of the cause, then let's invest properly in our ability to succeed in achieving it. Yeah, I think you're talking about the starvation mentality where people have this idea that because we're a small organization, we need to really, you know, starve ourselves of the things we need because we don't want to, uh, you know, look like we're doing doing too much in terms of uh, we don't want to look too rich. Right. So, 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 yeah, so you, you get half of what you need instead. And I think there's there's organizations on the other side of the spectrum, too, who spend money like water on things they don't need to spend money on. I know uh, I, I came into an organization once that had a 20% deficit and they were spending $18,000 a year on uh, marketing, but the marketing was stuff that nobody could ever use. It was, they were, they were putting ads in places that weren't even in the community, you know, and they were spending it all on these stupid ads that weren't getting them any return on investment. And we ended up spending $5,000 on, you know, better placed marketing and doing a lot more with it. But um, yeah, I think I think there's management, right? Like that. Yeah. You can't. You can't. You can never justify that kind of uh, you know excessive behavior and say that makes sense. It didn't make sense. It should have been corrected. But I also know so many smaller agencies um, where it's kind of like you, you you we can't buy a pencil, you know. Right. Right. We can't buy a computer. Our computer's ten years old, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. And and ultimately, what you spend in trying to in lost productivity. You know, and and two hours a day trying to get the computer to start up, it, it does. It's it's penny wise and pound foolish. Right, and that's true of staffing too, because people will avoid bringing on a staff person they really need that's going to help grow the organization because they think they they can't afford it. And actually, it, that staff person would be the thing that would put them over to being profitable, right? So Right. And the other thing I think the corporate sector knows it's really important to develop your staff, to provide training and professional development for staff because your your results they are, this is your vehicle to get the results. Um and I think we tend to be on the cheap side with that on especially in smaller not for profits. Um and I think we need that as much as anybody. Oh yeah, don't get me started on training. <laughs> Yeah, I I think it's one of the most absolutely. That's another big piece of BS is that this idea that we can't spend money on training, and it is probably the most important thing that we could do in terms of our staffing. Oh yeah, and I think like like I said, the problems we're trying to solve, like hunger, homelessness, you know, which we're trying to solve these big, huge issues, but we can't afford to have training for that. But somebody who's building a car or building a video game, you know, we we can invest in training and development. Why is the work we do not as important, if not more? Absolutely. We need to shift the way we value the work that not-for-profits do. Well, Dr. LaSalle Bryan, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you, and uh, you're incredibly wise. I can see that you must be a fantastic professor. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. 
Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Join us at the Summer School for Nonprofits for one amazing week every August. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS. <laughs>